Well, this morning we come to the final verses of the book of James. We have spent 16 weeks so far studying this book. This is week 17, and we have just these final two verses to consider. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll do one final sermon from the book of James where we consider the larger message of James and try to leave this series with a good encapsulation of what James has been trying to teach us in this letter. But as we come to these final two verses, they might strike you as a little odd, a little abrupt for the end of a letter. Maybe, like me, you're hoping for grace and peace be to you, or I love you with the affections of Christ, or something like that. But instead, James talks about something that can be really awkward and touchy. He talks about mutual accountability in the community of faith. He talks about dealing with sin, particularly sins that people are not confessing. He talks about calling people back into the way of truth. Well, that's not the way that you would probably end the letter, and it's not the way I would, but it is the way that James ends it. So we want to give careful attention to these last words that he gives to his readers. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of of sins. The tone of these verses is actually quite positive, isn't it? Even though he's dealing with the touchy subject of accountability for sin, his ultimate aim is restoration. Even though he's dealing with the issue of unconfessed sin, the end goal is actually something very positive. Salvation from death and atonement for sin. Now, Earlier, in the passage we considered last week, he called people to confess their sins one to another. And essentially, now what he's doing is just dealing with situations where people are failing to confess their sins to one another. If everyone confessed their sins to one another, we never would have to deal with this. We would never need to be mutually accountable because we'd all be initiating that confession one to another. But James knows, and I think we would admit as well, that we aren't so good at confessing our sins. More than that, we don't always see the sins that need to be confessed. We don't always see where we are straying, and so we need a community of faith that's also a community of mutual accountability, one that exercises spiritual watch care over one another, what we just read about in our church covenant. Now, as we approach this topic of accountability, confession of sin, and restoration, I'm certain that some of you in this room are put on edge a little bit because of past experiences in churches or because of people you know who have had really damaging situations in other churches where mutual accountability was not carried out in a Christ-like way where the call to mutual accountability was leveraged instead for gossip or some kind of spiritual abuse. We know that these things happen, and if you have experienced that, I want to say I'm sorry. That that should not happen. 
these verses and others like them in the New Testament should never be used to beat somebody up or to abuse them or to embarrass them in front of everyone. That's not what these verses are intended to do. So if that has been your experience, I want to say I am sorry. And even as we covenant as an assembly, our commitment to one another is to never do that. Our commitment as pastors is to never do that. But in that commitment then, we need to carry out these commands and instructions appropriately and rightly. So we can't avoid them because they've been abused. Instead, we need to put them into practice in the way that Christ and the apostles would intend. I think James hints at this even in the way that he begins this section by calling people brothers and sisters. He comes alongside them. He doesn't beat them from above. He puts his arm around them and calls them to guide each other back into the way of truth. He doesn't bring a dirty weapon to a holy war, so to speak. He doesn't allow for abuses of accountability. Instead, he addresses these individuals as his family in Christ. It's infused with kindness and grace. And as we talk about mutual accountability this morning, that's the tone that we ought to take on, both in the way we talk about it and in the way we practice it. Because James wants us to lovingly, gently nudge each other back into the way of truth. He doesn't instruct us to steamroll over one another. Steamrolling over other people will not turn them back from the truth. It will just flatten them where they are and leave them worse off than when you started to talk with them to begin with. So James takes a different tact, and I want to try to preserve that tone and tact throughout the letter. But that means that we have to face that head on. We can't avoid it. So what James does here is he shows that the necessity of restoration. There's sin, so there's need for restoration. And then he prescribes the means of restoration, which will be mutual accountability. And then finally, he shows us the beautiful picture of the results of restoration. So that will guide our examination of the text this morning. But he starts with the need for restoration in verse 19a. He states it somewhat generally. If anyone among you strays from the truth. He doesn't go into details. He just speaks generally here. But he points out that whenever someone has strayed from the truth, there's a need for restoration. There's a need for mutual accountability. I think it's worth pointing out that James is instructing individuals to pay attention to the people inside of their church. Notice he says that if any among you stray from the truth. He's not calling you to try to be responsible for any Christian that exists anywhere. Even though I think that's the way that sometimes this works itself out. Churches will not so much care about the people in their church, because if you call someone else to accountability, you might be called to accountability. Instead, we direct our attention to celebrity pastors or to social media influencers or to authors, and then we try to point out anyone who's strayed from the truth in that realm while ignoring those who are among us. What happens then is individuals use abrasive language. They turn things into heresy that are actually just misspeakings. 
they lodge bombs when really what's needed is just a loving word of correction, and they can do it because it doesn't affect anyone that they actually know or will ever know. All the while feeling like they've carried out their Christian duty. Well, James wants us not to think about the people out there, but the people in here. That's actually really freeing, isn't it? We don't have to worry so much about everyone out there. Instead, we need to lovingly be concerned with those among us who stray from the truth. I would suggest that that's actually a harder task to carry out because it takes discernment and love and consistency and faithfulness and forgiveness and restoration along the way. You'll notice it's always easy to call someone out. It's a lot harder to restore them and renew that relationship. Well, if we carry this out in the way that James instructs us to, we'll carry it out within our assembly. Now, very briefly, to apply this in one way, say that's why we care about church membership here. So some of you who are not members, perhaps you've said, hey, have you ever thought about joining our church? Well, part of why we do that is because we want to be concerned with the Christians that God makes us responsible for. And we know who those Christians are because they've joined our church. They've made that commitment that we read in the church covenant. And then we try to relate in love and tenderness and accountability with those Christians. So maybe you've been attending our church for some time and you've been thinking, how come no one is like discipling me or trying to keep me accountable because I know I'm sinning? Well, the answer might be that we are just trying to care about the people who have joined with us. And it's not that we don't love you or we don't care about you, but you haven't quite told us you want us to keep you accountable. And James wants us to care about those who are among us. So if we ever ask you if you've considered membership, just know it's because we love you and want to fold you into this and because we want you to help hold us accountable as we walk the road of Christian discipleship. So the need for restoration that we should focus on is the need within our assembly. But then he goes on, if anyone among you strays from the truth. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that someone's become a full-on heretic or an apostate? They denied the faith. That's not what James is getting here so much. And if we piece together these words about the truth and strain that appear earlier in the letter, it helps us out. So earlier, in James 1.16, there's, James says, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. That's the same Greek word that's rendered stray here. Some translations will say, don't be led astray, my brothers and sisters. So in chapter 1, verse 16, the situation where people are being led astray is especially as it relates to interpreting the experiences of their life and identifying the action and character of God. So there he's saying, don't say that God is at fault for your sin. So sometimes Christians can be led astray from the truth in the way that they think about God and in the way that they interpret the experiences of their life. So certainly James has that in mind. But then he also references the truth multiple times in this letter. Think most significantly in chapter 1, verse 18, where he says that God gave you birth by the word of truth. And then in verse 21 of chapter 1, where he says to receive the implanted word, which is just shorthand for word of truth, that is able to save your souls. So if we take those pieces and then we think later on, James says that if you turn someone from the error of their way, you'll save their soul from death. I think when James is talking about straying from the truth, he's fundamentally talking about people who have strayed from what the Bible teaches about God and from what the Bible teaches about how we ought to live. 
So remember, you're supposed to be a hearer of the word and a doer of the word of truth. So someone who strays from the truth is someone who has somehow strayed into wrong thinking about God or about themselves and how they ought to live as Christians. That's pretty general. So I'm going to try to help you uh, narrow it down a little bit and give you three categories, three areas of life in which Christians are prone to wander, in which they're prone to stray from the truth. The first could be a heretical strain. This is errors of doctrine. James has talked about this earlier in his letter. Sometimes Christians can make missteps when it comes to theology and interpreting the Bible. This is why we stress reading the Bible in community with other people here, because sometimes when you and I read the Bible in isolation from other people, we can come up with wonky interpretations of Scripture. And there's nothing like mean-spirited or evil driving our misinterpretation of Scripture or bad formulation of theology. We just don't know everything that we need to know. So James wants us to read the Bible with other people so that we don't stray from the truth in matters of doctrine. That's one area that we could stray from the truth. Another one is in matters of practice where we could become hypocritical. So if we stray too far in our doctrine, we can come, become heretical. If we stray too far in our practice, we can become hypocritical. This is what James gets at over and over again when he says, if someone says, and then he goes on and shows that their actions don't match with what they're saying. So if they say they have faith, but they don't have works, that's hypocrisy. If someone says to a needy brother or sister, be warmed and filled, but they don't give them food or clothing, that's hypocrisy. Over and over and over again, James has identified how Christians can kind of say one thing, they can say the right doctrine, but they go about the wrong practice. And we call that hypocrisy. Third, Christians can stray into a half-hearted devotion to God. This is what James gets at multiple times in this letter when he talks about being double-minded. We can be half-hearted in our love for God. Our affections can be halfway directed towards God and halfway to the world or to ourselves. Well, that's a strain from the truth. So we can stray away from orthodoxy, doctrine, we can stray from orthopraxy, right practice, and we can stray in orthopathy. That's our right loves, right affections. In all of these ways, Christians have a tendency to wander away from the truth. And often, when we wander away in one category, we start to wander away in another. Now, I, I want to suggest that for most of us, this probably won't look like straight-up heresy or, like, loud, brazen hypocrisy. You know, standing up on Sunday, whoever's praying that day, saying, I'm so glad that I'm not like these sinners. You know, most of us won't be hypocritical that way. Most of us won't be heretical in the way that we deny the Trinity or something. Most of us won't be so half-hearted that we actually admit it. I think the way that this happens is that it happens by degrees— subtly and slowly, almost without us recognizing it. But that doesn't make it any less dangerous. In fact, I'd suggest that makes it even more dangerous because we can't tell it's happening. So let me illustrate it in two ways. Um, number one, 
I, I don't know the math behind this, and if this is wrong, I'm sorry, but it works as a really good illustration. They, they say that when airplanes are flying, if they go off their course by one degree, then every 60 miles that they fly, they end off by one mile. And if they're going at like 550 miles per hour, they hit that 60 miles really, really fast. So if a plane sets out from here to Hawaii, and it's off by one degree, it will not end up in Hawaii. So if there's no course correct early on, even though it's just a one degree off track, there's a problem there and it will be devastating in the end. I think we can look at our lives that way. If we get off on our Christian journey of discipleship by one degree over time without correction, we'll end up very far away from Christ. We can also illustrate this with the classic frog in a pot of water where the the water's cold to start with and you slowly turn up the heat and the frog won't even know it or lobster or whatever it is. Uh, We we are very much, that's kind of gruesome, sorry. But but we can be like that. And actually it's quite fitting because eventually, as James shows us, when we stray from the truth, it leads to death. And very much like that frog or lobster or whatever else, we might not even realize it until it's too late. So when we stray from the truth, even by a matter of degree, over time the damage gets worse and worse and it eventuates in spiritual death. And often along the way, I'd suggest that when we're leading away from the truth, when we're misguided, when we're in sin, sin is always going to give birth to more sin. So it might start out as just one degree, but it gets worse and worse very quickly. So I'd suggest that all of us, as we look at our lives, should humbly admit that we need mutual accountability. We need people to show us where we get off one degree that we would never know, that we could never see on our own. We need people to show us our blind spots. Ultimately, what they're doing is very incrementally restoring us back to the way of truth without us actually really feeling that we need that much restoration. I think that's the best way that this should happen. We'll we'll get into this more in a moment. But if we wait to try to restore someone until after we have ignored their strain for a decade, that's going to be a very painful and hard experience. But if we cultivate a culture in our church where we're free to encourage one another and nudge each other back onto the way of truth, then it's not ever going to be that painful. The greatest pain, perhaps, will be the hurt that our pride feels when we recognize that we didn't see we were erring at all. That's the kind of church we need to be. The kind that helps restore one another on the daily so that it never gets to such a big deal that it turns into these formal acts of church discipline that we sometimes have to carry out. I think what we need to learn along the way then is that even though our walk with Christ is personal, it isn't fundamentally private. Even though our following of the Lord is something that's very intimate between us and the Lord, it's never just about us and the Lord. We're part of a community of faith So we ought to invite others to speak into our life, recognizing that we've been added to a family of faith that's been bought by Christ and bound together by him and been given this responsibility for mutual accountability. 
we need to be willing to open our lives up to other people in this church, so much so that we have the kind of relationships where we can trust that nobody will let us go without saying anything about it. No one will let us walk away from Christ without telling us that's what we're doing. No one will allow us to blindly leave what God has called us to, whether it's a matter of doctrine or action or affection. That's the kind of community of faith I want to be a part of. I, I don't want to be part of a community of faith that hesitates to tell me, hey man, you're, you've gotten off course here a little bit. I don't think truly any of us want that, even though we might not want it in the moment, if you know what I mean. That requires work on two sides. That requires you to open up your life to other people and allow them to speak into it. I just want to let that sit with you for a moment. I think every one of us can try to blame other people when eventually we wake up and see how far we've gotten into our sin without realizing at the same time that we were the kind of person who was mad at everyone who tried to say something early on. Don't be that kind of person. Be the kind of person when someone calls you out in whatever way it might be, who responds something like this. I don't see that at the moment, but I know that I'm a sinner in need of grace. I always have been and always will be. Let, let me think about what you talked to me about to, to see if you've actually assessed the situation well. I, I think that should be the default response that every single one of us has when our sin is pointed out to us, even if it's just by a matter of degree. That's hard to do. It, it makes us not respond in the moment, even if it's like, oh yeah, you're probably right, and then we ignore it. It invites reflection and meditation, but it also tells that person, thank you. Thank you for pointing this out to me. You might not assess me well. I'll talk to other Christians too and, and like get other people to get a pulse on this thing. But ultimately, every one of us should be willing to say, I might be off by a degree or two and need that word of rebuke and confrontation. So let's be a community of faith that allows other people to speak into our life when they recognize any sort of need for restoration. But then James moves us forward to talk about the means of restoration, which I've already hinted at in that he simply implies in these verses. It says, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person no. Very generally, someone, a person. So we might say, well, James didn't identify who should be doing the accountability, so I'm off the hook. Doesn't apply to me. Someone else can take up that burden. We don't have to speculate about who James is talking to. He fronted this section by saying, brothers and sisters. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, elders and pastors, overseers of the assembly. He didn't say deacons. He didn't say you who are especially nosy and hyper-spiritual. He said brothers and sisters, someone, a person. James requires every Christian in the assembly to participate in the act of mutual accountability 
that has as its goal restoration. We already read that in our church covenant where we commit to exercise affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, faithfully admonishing and exhorting one another as occasion may require in accordance with our responsibility for mutual shepherding, encouragement, and accountability. Your pastors are responsible to lead in this, but every one of you bears the responsibility to watch over one another, to take up this task of mutual shepherding. So the means of restoration is you. God wants to use you to restore other Christians into the way of truth might be asking, well, how do I do that? Okay, I have to take on this responsibility, so what does that mean? What does it look like? Well, James hints at it here when he talks about turning that person back. So in verse 19, if someone turns him back, and then in verse 20, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way. So what does James mean by turning someone from their sin or from the error of his way? Throughout the New Testament, when this terminology is used of churning, it always has to do with repentance and conversion. I think what James is getting at is that you're showing people where they've wandered from the truth, and you're calling them to repentance, to turn back into the way of truth. You can't do this for them. You can't force them, and you shouldn't try, but you open their eyes to where they need to turn, and you invite them to do it, and you escort them along the way. Every time this happens, it's like there's a mini conversion that takes place where we've turned from the truth and now we're helping someone turn back to the truth, turn back to Jesus. That's what's going on here. Now that might seem a little weird to say, but I think every one of us has experienced that. The sense of a mini conversion in our life where we had our eyes open to a sin that was in our life and and we finally dealt with it and it was like, We felt like we were a Christian for the first time. And some of us have wondered, do I need to get baptized again? Or was I ever a Christian to start with? I I want to say to you that that is the normal experience in the Christian life. When you're living in community with other Christians, they help you see your sin. And when you confess it and repent of it and turn from it, it feels like you got saved all over again. And that's not a bad thing. That is God's gift to you to taste once again of what it was like to see Christ for the very first time. Christian, your responsibility is to escort other people to see Christ again as if for the very first time. That is a glorious calling. That's something that we can get behind and get excited about. It transforms this responsibility from something that's awkward because we're talking to other people about hard things, to something that is ultimately loving and not about us at all. It's about showing them Christ and bringing them back to Christ once again. It's not about coercing people. It's not about trying to conform them into our image, but to show them Christ and escort them to him once again. I think a word of caution here is needed because some of us have grown up in environments where calling someone to repent took shape in very abrasive ways, or it was calling people to repent for things that weren't actually sins. We have to be on guard against that as we hold one another accountable. 
we don't need to call people to be just like us, and we don't need to call people to repent when they don't look just like us. That can happen way too easily because we get frustrated with other Christians, and then we abuse this command and say, well, I want this person to look a particular way, and so I'm going to tell them that they're in sin. That, that is not what we should be doing. Our instruction here is not to bring people back into line with us, but into line with the truth and ultimately with Christ so that they can reflect his image. So I just want to caution us, don't try to make a robot of yourself. Don't, don't try to make someone conform to you. Not only is that not what Christianity is about, but it will actually harm you and that person when a genuine sin has been committed and you try to restore them. You see what I mean? When it's like crying wolf a little bit, when people realize this person's trying to get me to repent of something that's not a sin, and then when they actually are confronted with sin, it's like it falls on deaf ears. So I'd want to encourage you to take up the responsibility, but to be cautious in the way you carry it out. To not, in every conversation, try to like go on a little bit of a sin hunt and find everything that could be wrong with this person and call them to accountability. I also want to encourage you to do this with the uh, tone that James takes on here. These conversations do not need to be overly burdensome and heavy. They don't need to be overly formal. I think these conversations very often are done best side by side as you're doing life together, whatever that may be. I think there are times for face-to-face conversations where you deal with this, but very often this is, should just be the normal pattern of our Christian life as we in, engage on work days together and have each other into our homes and show up at prayer nights and all the rest. If you turn it into something that is overly formal, I, I just would say you're, you're probably not doing it right and it's probably not helpful in the long run. Um, I, I'll relay one experience of mine like this. Um, I used to work at this camp in the summers during college, and there was this guy who was the staff evangelist, which in one way kind of felt like he was the, the staff Holy Spirit who would like go out and convict you of sin. Um, and there was one day when I was just like minding my own business, and this guy like called me into his office and it's this dimly lit room, and there's one lamp on in the corner, and he has me sit down, and he, like, started telling me, like, all the sins he had observed me committing over the last few weeks at this camp, and, like, really honed in on one, and I remember sitting there as a college kid in tears because this guy just so laid into me, and then, like, for the next month, I just felt like everyone was watching me and observing every little sin, and I couldn't get outside of my own head because there, there was just this, like, really dramatic, abrasive confrontation. You don't want to do that to other people. What you want to do is nudge them into the truth in loving, gentle ways, not, like, sitting on a throne above them, but talking to them as your brother and sister, wrapping your arm around them and escorting them into the way of truth that leads to life. This will require us, though, to have hard conversations. We can't avoid conversations about sin. We can't always beat around the bush. You have to address some things head on. 
you can do it in right and appropriate ways. Now, for some of you, that will be your inclination. You have no trouble calling things out because you just like to call them as you see them. For others of you, this could be really, really hard because you don't like making people mad at you and you don't like talking about tough things. So, so some of you are more happy to talk about sin and others of you are happy to only talk about grace. Well, we have to talk about sin and grace because if we don't, both of them are lessened. I want to read you a paragraph from a guy who helps us in this direction. He writes, To speak of grace without sin is not helpful. To do this is to trivialize the cross of Christ. So to speak of um, grace without sin is to trivialize the cross of Christ, to skate past all the struggling by good people down the ages to forgive, accept, and rehabilitate sinners, including themselves, and therefore to cheapen the grace of God that always comes to us with blood on it. To speak of grace without looking squarely at these realities— Without painfully honest acknowledgement of our own sin and its effects is to shrink grace to a mere embellishment of the music of creation, to shrink it down to a mere grace note. In short, for the Christian church to ignore, euphemize, or otherwise mute the lethal reality of sin is to cut the nerve of the gospel. For the sober truth is that without full disclosure on sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, unnecessary, and finally uninteresting. That's not a very beautiful Christian life. That's an empty gospel. So as we call one another to accountability, we must talk about grace, but we also have to talk about sin. I think in days gone by, it was a lot easier to talk about sin and forget grace. I think now for most of us, especially if you're like in my age category, it's a lot easier to talk about grace than it is to talk about sin. Well, we need both of them together as we become a community of mutual accountability where we graciously call one another to repentance. So the need for restoration is our sin the means of restoration is one another participating in mutual accountability. But finally, James draws attention to the beauty of the results of restoration in verse 20. Let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. These are glorious results of confrontation and accountability, and they describe the restoration that's possible in Jesus Christ. There are two aspects here. First is the covering of a multitude of sins, and second is saving the soul from death. And covering sin has to happen before salvation from death can occur. So let's deal with it in that order. First, uh, there's a covering of a multitude of sins. Now, I would be afraid when someone hears that, that what they would hear is um, we ignore sin. We hide it. So what we do as a church is we just look past one another's faults. We look past each other's doctrinal errors or errors of affection or errors of living, and we just ignore it. We cover it up. That's not what James is talking about at all. Because when sin gets covered up, it grows in the dark and it becomes worse and worse. There's a different kind of covering that's at stake here, and it's where the sin is named clearly and it's repented of, and it can be covered by the blood of Christ. 
James here is referencing Leviticus 16 that describes the Day of Atonement, where the priest would sprinkle blood on the altar and burn incense to cover the sins of the people. The sins would be confessed for, they'd be repented of, they would be covered by the blood of the sacrifice. It's interesting to me that James draws on this, and it's almost like he positions every single Christian now in the role of the high priest who would do this. The high priest could not forgive sin. He couldn't cover it himself, only through the sacrifice. Similarly, you and I cannot forgive the sins of our brothers and sisters, and we cannot cover it with any sacrifice of ours, but what we can do is stand as a mediator between that brother or sister as we walk them to Christ where his sacrifice covers a multitude of sin forever. What we have here then is an invitation for you and I to participate in Christ's work by walking with a brother and sister as they confess their sins and find forgiveness in Christ. This gets a little bit to what we talked about last week as we confess our sins to one another so that we can pray for each other and declare those sins forgiven. The same is true when we confront people over their sins. We show them how their sins can be covered, and we pronounce them covered, not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of who Christ is. Once again, this gives us direction for how we ought to carry out our mutual accountability. Our mutual accountability does not stop with just telling somebody that they've sinned. It also continues with showing them the beauty of Christ's sacrifice and then affirming the forgiveness that's offered in Christ as they repent. For those of us who are inclined to keep other people accountable quite easily, we often stop after that first step. You're a sinner. Take care of it. That's not what James has in mind. He has in mind going with that person, escorting them to the cross where their sins will be atoned for, where they will be covered. When sins are forgiven, when they're covered, the second aspect of restoration comes true. That person's soul will be saved from death. James has talked about this throughout his letter, hasn't he? He's talked about the word of truth, which implanted will save your soul from death. He's talked about salvation a lot. And I think he's talked about two kinds of death. One is what we might call eschatological death, the death of judgment before God of sinners whose sins have not been covered. What might be more pressing for James, though, is the inbreaking of that death into the present. When James is talking about helping people find a covering for their sins and being saved from death, I don't think he's fundamentally talking about um, at the judgment seat of God. I think he's talking about the kind of death that sin brings into our daily life and existence. The inbreaking of death that always follows sin. So if you remember back to James chapter 1, where he talks about desire that gives way to sin, that ultimately gives way to death, he's talking about death in this life. Because wherever there is sin, there will be a manifestation of death to follow. Wherever you and I sin, we will experience death. Why is that? 
It's because sin is a parasite that leeches onto everything that is life. And as it sucks the life out of the true life, it looks living for a while. So when we chase after sin, all that we see is what looks alive, and it will feel that way for a while, but eventually our sin will result in death. That lie that frees you from what feels like death for a moment and it looks like it's offered you life, will eventually bring about death. That word of anger at your spouse or your child that looks like it brings the life of resolution to a problem will ultimately only bring about a deeper death in your relationship. That glimpse at pornography that makes it feel like you have acceptance in life for a moment, it will lead you to death. Every sin looks like life initially, but it will always turn out to be death. This guy writes, we notice only those features that sin has pirated from goodness. Energy, imagination, persistence, and creativity. We, we generally only notice the best parts about what our sin brings us until it bites us in the end with the sting of death. It's because it's a parasite. So when we can help each other be accountable, we can save one another from that poisonous bite of death that will always follow our sin. You can see why we need one another, can't you? Because our sin looks like it's offering us life in the moment. It promises us heaven when we commit it, and we can't see that it will deliver us hell in the end. We need one another to show us that. And we need rescue from that, not only on the final day, but in every single moment of our life. I'd submit that every one of us needs that. Every one of us needs it, and every one of us can have it. I want to tell you that you are assured life if you will abandon your sin and repent and find Christ. Whatever it is you're tempted toward right now, it will bring you death. But if you turn away from it, Jesus offers life every single time. And for all of those in this room, you can make that same offer to your brothers and sisters as you see them strain from the truth. That Christ always offers life because he always atones for sin. In a moment, we're going to sing just as I am. We're ending with this song because even as we're called to keep one another accountable, we recognize that every single one of us needs accountability too. And in it all, as a community of faith, we need to come to Jesus where we'll find forgiveness from our sin. Our brothers and sisters need it. We need it. So let's be a community of mutual accountability, a community that enjoys restoration time and time again. Will you stand with me as I pray? And then let's sing together as we commit ourselves to Christ, coming to him broken as we are, but coming with the promise of restoration and forgiveness. Father, we come to you broken, empty, sinful. We come to you not even seeing all of the ways that we have strayed from the truth, not seeing the ways that we've strayed in doctrine or in practice or in our affections. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes to these things, 
but we also pray that your spirit would use our brothers and sisters in this assembly to show us where we've strayed from the truth. And we pray that they would lovingly and gently and graciously lead us back into the way of truth that leads to life, because that way is Jesus. So we come, we come broken, we come empty. Would you fill us now? Would you restore us? Would you make us a community that's brimming with life because we've related to one another in these ways? In Christ we pray. Amen.